0: When the Andrea Gale left Gloucester Harbor in Massachusetts on September 20th, 1991 and headed into the North Atlantic, no one could have known that that little fishing boat would never be seen again. Only a bit of debris ever turned up, and the six crew members vanished forever. In his book, The Perfect Storm, author Sebastian Junger immortalized the fate of the Andrea Gale. A movie followed... But the real star of the book and the movie was the storm itself, a terrifying, relentless monster born of fierce wind and mountainous waves. Three deadly elements came together in October of 1991, a front moving from Canada toward New England, a high-pressure system building over Canada's east coast, and the dying remnants of Hurricane Grace, which was churning along the eastern seaboard of the United States. Strong weather was coming from three of the four points on the compass, all of it converging on the little Andrea Gale. No wonder meteorologists called it the perfect storm. The book and the movie brought the term the perfect storm uh, into common usage, but the concept is as old as fallen humanity, is it not? Sometimes the perfect storm hits our lives. Jacob was facing the perfect storm, the biggest crisis of his life. He was heading home after 20 years of exile. Esau, the twin brother he had conned out of both birthright and blessing, was coming his way with 400 men, which didn't feel much like a welcoming party, but rather like an army. Jacob could not turn back. He had vowed that he would never return to the land of his uncle Laban. So no turning back now. Jacob had to meet Esau tomorrow. And for once, Jacob had nothing up his sleeve. He had no army. For all we know, he didn't even have a weapon to prepare. We saw last week, Jacob had done three things. Divided his camp in two so that at least half might escape. Sent five herds of more than 550 animals ahead as waves of gifts to pacify Esau and prayed, which was the important thing. That's really the only thing he needed to do. And in prayer, he reached back to grab onto God's promises and he bent low to admit how unworthy he was of all God's goodness to him. He had prayed. He had prayed the most basic of all prayers. Save me. Save me, I pray, for I am afraid. Save me. We said last week that fear is often the front door to the school of prayer. The treasured life that God had promised to his father Isaac and his grandfather Abraham was almost within his grasp. It was just on the other side of this little river, the Jabbok. Just like all the other times, there was Esau in the way. That was the story of his life. Jacob had nothing to do now but count the dark hours of the night. Tomorrow was D-Day. One way or another, he and Esau would have it out. Now he sat alone in the dark. I think Jacob was trying to trust God, to trust that God would save him as he had prayed. But as we all know... It's not so easy to trust God when fear and danger loom in the middle of the night. We're looking at this section of Jacob's life as a three-act drama. Act 1 was last Sunday's message. It looks fine at the beginning as he starts heading home. But then things take a bad turn. Esau's coming with 400 men. Act 2, which we'll see today and next Sunday, is the unexpected twist when things go from bad bad to worse act three is what happens when the two brothers finally meet uh, in the sermon after that so let's read our text for today in it we're going to meet the god who struggles the god who struggles that's the title of the message today as we continue our series of lessons uh, from jacob's journey with god that we're calling a disciple's life the blessing and the limp because we get both when we walk with jesus don't we some kind of blessing, some kind of limb. The God who struggles. A strange title for a sermon, don't you think? Doesn't sound like something God would do. Struggle? That's what I do. But stay with me. Walk with me as we work our way through today's passage of Scripture. So let's read our text for today. It's Genesis 32, verses 22 through 28. This is the Word of God. That night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he he, he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Alone in the dark, struggling for your life. Anybody ever done that? That's where we are. There was Jacob. In the dark of night, in a ravine by the river Jabbok, I bet he couldn't see his hand in front of his face. The darkness was heavy, foreboding. And then, you have to experience it. You just have to picture this. Imagine this. Out of nowhere, without a sound to give him away, a mighty man threw his arms around Jacob. Jacob's heart must have jumped. I mean, who was this? What did he want? In the blind groping and straining, Jacob frantically tried to figure out who he was fighting. What's going on? Is it a robber? Well, why wouldn't he have just stabbed me and taken what he wanted? Is it Esau? But why would he come here alone when he has 400 men with him? Who then? This man did not fight to steal, nor did he fight to kill. He just wrestled Jacob as if the wrestling were the point. Who would do that? It wasn't long before the wrestling match stopped uh, being a battle of strength and became a struggle of will. Jacob knew this was no ordinary man by now, but he fought on with an iron will, and he seemed to be prevailing. Then the stranger touched Jacob's hip, just like this. No roundhouse punch, no wrenching twist, a mere touch and Jacob's hip came apart at the seams. He cried out, his leg gave way, he clung to the man, not to defeat him, but for support. Who is this man whose mere touch can cripple? Jacob must have thought. By now the black sky was lightening ever so slightly. It was still too dark to see much, but dawn was at least whispering over on the horizon. No words had passed between Jacob and the stranger that long night. Probably a few grunts and groans, and Jacob's anguished moan when his hip gave way, but no words. Then the mighty wrestler said the strangest thing to Jacob. Let me go, for it is daybreak. What kind of reason is that to break off the fight? Except for the one who lives always out of human sight. Jacob now knew with whom he'd been wrestling was the very God whose blessing he'd been scheming to get all his life. It was the same God he had seen at the top of the stairway to heaven in his dream at Bethel. God had then been robed in light. Now he was cloaked in darkness. Why would this God come to wrestle him? Jacob suddenly knew that he was as close to death as the dawn. For who could see God and live? I want us to ask a few questions of our text today. And the first question is why. Why? Why would God struggle with us? I will not let you go unless you bless me, Jacob gasped. God's blessing had been his life's goal, and now the angel of the Lord fought to break free, to take Jacob's blessing and leave. What do you know? Esau wasn't the threat after all. God himself was. So Jacob, holding on for dear life, began to weep. You can't go. Please don't go. Please don't leave without blessing me. Please. His tears must have muddied the dirt on his face. His hip ached like fire. His strength was gone. Finally, his mighty will had given way and collapsed into tears and begging. He had no more tricks up his sleeve, no bargains left to make barely a leg left to stand on, if you know what I mean. The stranger spoke again, and Jacob could never have anticipated the question. What is your name? The stranger whispered. There in the dark, I wonder if Jacob blushed. The man knew who he was, of course, but perhaps Jacob realized that the night's long struggle was the very story of his life the whole night of wrestling could have been called by his name, Jacob, heel grabber. To say his name, Jacob, to the stranger was to describe his deceitful life and pronounce his own indictment. This is who I am. For who could or would bless a man whose well-deserved name was heel grabber, deceiver, anything to get ahead? Jacob, he confessed, my name is Jacob, sounding exactly like a man who says, guilty, your honor. (laughs) The fight had stopped, all was quiet. Jacob lay exhausted, clutching at his throbbing hip. A third time, the stranger spoke the utterly unexpected. Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans. And have overcome. Jacob was stunned. His mind was spinning. Overcome. He was spent, crippled, weeping, begging, alone at the feet of a mighty angel of the Lord. Overcome? With Esau and his 400 men heading his way? Overcome? Israel? He was confused. Finally, Jacob began to see what was happening. He had prayed only yesterday that God would save him. Save me! Now this name, this new name, a new identity, was a pardon. It was his deliverance, his salvation. It was a strange, upside-down name for the man who had spent his whole life trying to butt in at the front of the line. His new name, this wonderful, new, grace-filled, born-again name was Israel, which means, as best translated, God struggles. The real story of his life, the story wrestled out in the dark, worked out behind the scenes, was not Jacob's futile striving to win, but God's relentless, grace-filled striving to pin Jacob down by his love. Are you with me? Can I get an Amen. God is wrestling to pin Jacob down by his love. This story, it's just a few verses, but this story is bigger than it looks. It's the hinge on which Jacob's whole life pivots. And it really is, in fact, in many ways, the story of the whole Bible in a nutshell. It's the story of all those on whom God fixes his love in Christ. It's your story, and it's mine. I think the most important part of this story is when God changed Jacob's name to Israel. Your name will no longer be Jacob, not deceiver, but Israel. Because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Now, The footnote in my Bible, and probably yours, says Israel means he struggles with God. But that is not exactly what Israel means. More accurately, it means God struggles. It's a strange name indeed. The reason for the new name focuses on Jacob, because you've struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. That seems to be a strange conclusion, to me at least, at this particular moment, with Jacob terrified of the approaching Esau, lying, crippled, and spent at the feet of God's own angel. Could anyone seem less like an overcomer at that point? And even if you look to the past, where Jacob had outfoxed his brother twice, and then his father and his uncle, why would God God commend and bless him for that kind of overcoming? I don't think so. I think the overcoming in Jacob's life started that very night. He had always been an overcomer by tricking and tripping others. Nothing that warranted a new name he already had. that, But that night, in the moment Jacob fell and gave in to God, Jacob overcame God, if you will. The name Israel, God strives, God struggles, that's a jarring statement. Why would God Almighty, creator of the universe, the all-powerful Lord of hosts, the eternal Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, Why would he ever need or want to struggle? Here's why. God struggles with those he loves. God struggles with those he loves so that we will not continue in our dead-end, short-sighted, bound-to-fail struggles to get ahead, get our way, get life's best, and begin to rely on him instead. God wanted to bless Jacob's life. He had told him so. God wants to bless your life, too, beyond your wildest imagination. He has told you so by sending Jesus Christ to redeem you from destruction. But you cannot, you cannot and will not get God's blessing by doing things your own sinful, selfish, grasping Here's how it often works. You're in the midst of some challenging situation in life, a perfect storm of some kind, a crisis at work or school, or something with your marriage or your kids, or a health scare. You do everything you can to manage it, to fix it, to make it work, to make it better. But what has worked for you before doesn't work anymore. Anybody ever experienced that? What has worked for you before doesn't work anymore. No matter how hard you try, no matter how much you struggle, it's like the deck is stacked against you by an unseen hand. It's like someone behind the scenes is purposely making this as difficult as possible for you. And finally, things fall apart. You drop out of school. You lose your job, your marriage, your health, your kids. You're crushed. There's no more fight left in you. What has always worked doesn't work now. And you have nothing left. You have no tricks left up your sleeve. You just spent a terrible night at the Jabbok River. You just wrestled with God. It was a severe mercy. God just took you down to save you, to change you, because he loves you, and he knows you need to trust in Jesus and to rest in Jesus alone as your very life. An illustration. Some of you may have taken lifeguarding classes. In lifeguarding classes, the teacher will often serve as the victim for demonstration purposes. He swims out into the deep end of the pool, and he plays the part of the frantic, drowning person. He splashes and gasps and cries for help, and some junior high kid swims out to save him. Now, if he gets too close, you know what happens. The teacher latches onto him in a death grip, you know, his arms and legs twined around him as if in desperation. If it had been the real deal, both of them would have drowned. That's the point he's trying to illustrate. The way to save a drowning, panicky person is to stop just beyond their reach and then tuck and dive down deep underneath him and From behind, with your hands firmly gripping his legs and his sides, you climb up the back of his body. And then you throw your arm around his chest, and and you you put your hand into his armpit, and you really dig in. You grab him hard in the armpit, and it hurts. It's supposed to. It's supposed to hurt enough that he goes limp, that he then stops fighting you and lets you carry him to safety. In other words, the only way to save the drowning man is to defeat him first, even if you must hurt him a bit. That is what God did with Jacob at the Jabbok River. He conquered him in order to save him. And that's what God wants to do with you and with me. Second question, how? How does God struggle with How does the Almighty God struggle with us so as as to save us and not destroy us? God wrestles with us in order to break our will by letting it run its full course so that we can see it for what it is in all its ugliness and all the awful places where it will take us. Our son Jeremy is the wrestling coach over at Central High School, and I love to watch him work with his team on their wrestling move. Every wrestler develops his favorite moves, and so does God. God used three of his favorite moves on Jacob in order to save him from himself. Maybe he's used these same moves on you too. I know he's used them on me. First of all, verse 25 shows us that sometimes God will disable us. Sometimes God will disable us. That's one of his favorite moves. I hate to tell you if you don't know already. He wrenched Jacob's hip out of socket with just a touch, just a light touch. In some ways, God doesn't fight fair. Whatever it is that makes your will so strong and stubborn, God will touch it and cripple it. I can tell you that one of the hardest but best things that ever happened to me was God disabling my life by touching me with post-polio syndrome more than 20 years ago because it brought me to my knees before God. My self-sufficiency, I was big on that. My self-sufficiency was being stripped from me. And I had to meet him and others in my weakness, in my falling down to find God's strength made perfect in my weakness. That's humbling, very humbling. How has God used this move on you? Sometimes God will threaten to leave us. That's another one of his favorite moves. Have you ever experienced that? In verse 26, the stranger says, let me go for it is daybreak. And at first, Jacob just wants to get the attacker off his back. But later, he won't let him go. Who's wrestling whom here? God beats up on us, takes what is precious to us, and reduces us to desperation in the darkness. this favorite move of God took the form of clinical depression for me more than 15 years ago. A long season that was like being in a dark, lonely, scary cave. I was angry at times. I was angry at times and despairing at others. And then somehow, I I don't know how this happens, it's something the Holy Spirit does. Somehow in the angry, desperate darkness when we've kind of had it with God, he says he's leaving. I felt that way, that if he hadn't left me already, he would soon. Why wouldn't he? It was right then, right then that we realized we cannot let that happen at any price. That cannot happen. If God leaves us, what do we have? We will not only go unblessed, we will lose our life, our soul, our very self. We will be left with nothing We must have him. We must have God. And sometimes we don't know that we must have God until God is all we have. We must have God. How has God used this move on you? A third favorite move of God we see in our text is that always, not sometimes, always, God will make us face ourselves. That's what happened in verse 27 when the man asked, what is your name? He's asking, who are you really? Who are you? It's just you and me in the dark. Who are you? God breaks our will by making us face our grasping, controlling, self-centered, demanding, desperate selves. I was on the other end of this favorite move of God when I got myself addicted to alcohol about ten years ago and had to meet God and myself and eventually others there. Who are you, John? Who are you really? You live with yourself so long that you get used to your ways of doing things, and they look normal, right, reasonable. Don't you think that your way is the best way, the most right and reasonable way? They don't look your ways, my ways. They don't look controlling or demanding or perfectionistic or self-reliant. You can't see it. But in that kind of dark night, God will make his move because he loves you and say, who are you really? John, who are you really? Jacob, who are you really? Mary, who are you really? And facing what we are can be crushing, even humiliating. But it is also necessary. It's where recovery and healing and the gospel kick in in a powerful way where the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ become everything to you. In the deepest darkness, his hope begins to dawn again as we come to the end of ourselves. Amen. How has God used this move on you? One final question is the what. What do we do when God wins the struggle? What do we do Because this is inevitable. God will win the struggle. (laughs) What do we do then? Answer? Beg for mercy. (laughs) Beg for mercy. That's what Jacob did. In fact, that's exactly what the prophet Hosea tells us Jacob did. Hosea chapter 12 says, In the womb he grasped his brother's heel. As a man he struggled with God. He struggled with the angel and overcame him. He wept and begged for his mercy. That's what Jacob did. He wept and begged for his mercy. That is the way to win a battle with God. Weep and beg for his mercy. Because he is the God of all grace in Jesus Christ. His grace is there for you. Weep and beg for his mercy. God does all of this. He uses some of his favorite moves on us so that we will stop fighting and struggling against him, and trust him, trust him, trust him instead. It's a lesson that all of us have to learn, usually the hard way, and usually many times. Ever since Adam and Eve were driven from the garden because of their sin against the holy God who had created them, God has been drawing us back to himself as recreated, restored, and renewed men and women through faith in Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter 30 describes it this way. Verse 15 This is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength, but you would have none of it. Have you ever been in that position? Can you recall the horror of? of God calling you to repentance, to rest in him, his salvation, to be still and know that he's God, trust him, but you would have none of it. You still were working on your moves. Verse 18, what does God do in the face of that? Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore he will rise up to show you compassion. Compassion. In New Testament terms, we humble ourselves before God. We confess our sinfulness. We put our faith in Jesus Christ. We surrender to God. And we discover what a compassionate, good, good Father God is. Amen? That Jesus is the only way to cross safely into the land of God's forgiveness and blessing. He's the only one, Jesus alone, the only one who can bring you home bring you back to the Father. That's what he does. C.S. Lewis was a brilliant British scholar and writer, one of my favorites, who was also once an agnostic. And here's how he described his conversion. I've read it a few times, and these are words he could have written for Jacob himself, and perhaps for me, and perhaps for you. Listen to these words, C.S. Lewis. You must picture me alone in that room, night after night, feeling the steady, unrelenting approach of him who I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet. But who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in, kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape? Then he says... The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of man. And his compassion, his compassion is our liberation. His compassion is our liberation. The divine humility, that's what this passage is all about. The divine humility. And who can duly adore such love? God struggles. God struggled with Jacob. God struggled with C.S. Lewis. God struggles with me. God struggles with you. God struggles. That new name for Jacob is a tribute, but not to Jacob or to you or to me. It's a tribute, rather, to the humility and the loving kindness and the compassion of God. He does not have to struggle with us. He does not have to do that. He could let us go off to destruction. But he has graciously chosen to struggle with us because of his great mercy and grace toward us, because he would not leave us alone in our dark foolishness, sin, stubbornness, rebellion, God struggles. That is the new name he gives to Jacob, a new identity, an identity found through a close, painful, and breaking kind of encounter with the one who is Lord of all. And it is also the name God wants to give to you in Jesus Christ. God's struggles. Will you surrender to him, find his compassion, his forgiveness, be liberated, and receive a new life, a new identity from the touch, just the touch of his nail-scarred hands? Those hands, oh, those hands speak the blessing of God's love. Will you receive it? Will you receive it? Amen.